Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 38. If you are using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find Luke 21, verse 5, on page 880. These verses are often referred to as Jesus' Olivet Discourse. It is, it is called that because, according to Matthew and Mark, though Luke doesn't specify, Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus gave this discourse while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. It is the final discourse of his public ministry. These are, are Jesus' last public words before his betrayal, arrest, false conviction, and unjust crucifixion. And as we will see, these are words that point us to his second coming, point us to his coming again in the clouds with power and great glory. Let us read it together. I'll be reading the entire discourse, but I'm just going to tell you up front. We're not dealing with the whole thing this morning, so uh, don't get too nervous. But I do want you to hear the whole thing uh, so that we can hear it uh, together. So Luke chapter 21, beginning at verse 5. This is the very word of God. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, The days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they said, and they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations in Jerusalem. 
will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and of the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding at what is coming on the world. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray as for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father in heaven, we ask for your grace. We ask that by your Holy Spirit you would lead us into truth. We ask that by your Holy Spirit you would sanctify us by the truth. And that you would use your truth to equip us for every good work which you have prepared in advance that we should do them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that we notice about a passage like this is that it is prophetic. Luke writes, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, as for these things that you see, a clear reference to the temple. He says, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown That is a prophetic statement. Jesus is is talking about a day or about days that will come in the future. Days in the future when the temple in Jerusalem will be utterly destroyed. Days in the future when not one stone will be left upon another. And this prophecy prompts his disciples to ask a question. We see it in verse 7. They ask him, teacher, when will these things be? They, They ask him about the timing. When is this going to happen? And they ask him about the the signs that will indicate that it is coming. What will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And the entire discourse is Jesus' response, his prophetic response to that question or to those questions. And so before we get into the details of the passage this morning, I I want to make a comment about prophetic literature or prophetic scripture in general. There are some pastors, there are some teachers who devote a great deal of time and energy to understanding and to explaining such passages. It is all they ever seem 
to talk about. They have prophetic conferences. They write books about prophecies. They, they preach and teach upon these texts. But of course, on the other hand, there are other pastors, other teachers, who seem to devote a great deal of time and energy to avoiding these passages. They, they seem to, to never talk about them. And if I have to confess, I would confess that I probably fall into that second category. Of all the areas of theology, I have spent by far the least amount of time studying eschatology, the, the doctrine of the last things. When I was a kid, my dad used to joke that he was a pan mill. That is, he didn't really hold strongly to one particular view of the millennium. He wasn't strongly pre or post or awe mill, but he was pretty sure it was all going to pan out in the end. When I was old enough to develop my own views, I followed suit. I didn't spend much time studying the various views, and I didn't spend much time studying the scriptures upon which those views were based. It was not my, my chief concern. It was not my focus. I understood the basics, but I was content to be a pan mill like my father. And I suspect that there are many here this morning who are something like me. People who are hesitant to spend too much time on prophecy. People who don't have a, a strong view concerning the last days and are probably a little suspicious of those who do. I also suspect that there are probably some here this morning who are in the first camp. People who spend a great deal of time and have spent a great deal of time studying and, and thinking about prophecy. People who know what they believe about the last days and hold their views with conviction. People who may hold those who differ in suspicion. And so this morning, before we begin to look at this text, I want to offer a word of warning to both groups. I want to, to say something first to those who are hesitant to spend too much time studying prophecy. Those who, who, are, who are hesitant to, to say too much about what these passages might mean. Those like me. And even as I had to challenge myself this week, I want to challenge you against laziness. J.C. Ryle says that too many Christians use humility as a mask for sloth when it comes to prophetic scripture. It's too hard, we say. We, we can't possibly understand it. We'll just have to wait and see what happens. There's, there's no point in, in spending too much time thinking about those passages now. This is often our excuse for not studying at all. And if that is your temptation, if you are attempted to, to avoid these passages, then you, like me, need to remember that these prophecies are God-breathed Scripture. These prophecies are, are part of the canon, just like Paul's letter to the Romans. And therefore, these prophecies are profitable. They are profitable for teaching. They are profitable for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. Yes, they can be mishandled. Yes, they can be misapplied like any scripture. But they are for our benefit. Jesus spoke these words so that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so it is good for us to give these passages the time and the attention that they deserve. We are going to strive to understand them, and we are going to strive to apply them. On the other hand, I also want to say a word of warning to those who are inclined to study nothing but prophecy. And to those, I want to give you a warning 
against pride. Again, J.C. Ryle is helpful writing about this very text. He says, Let us beware of that dogmatical and arrogant spirit which makes men forget that they are merely students and to talk as confidently as if they were prophets themselves. Paul says, In this age, we see through a glass darkly. In this age, we know in part. We must not arrogantly assume to know more than has been revealed. Because such confidence has detrimental effects. It can can break the peace of the church and it can shipwreck the faith of those who become disillusioned. We must believe and we must know the Word of God, including the prophecies. But we must not go beyond God's Word. We must receive what we have been told, but we must not put the same confidence in our own speculations. Remember, these words were spoken for the good of the church. They are not a puzzle to figure out. They are not a a puzzle that we're going to figure out at the end of the age, but they they were beneficial to the disciples in that day. And if our understanding has no benefit for them, and if it has no benefit for each generation after them, then, then we've missed something. Jesus spoke these words that we might know how to live today in the light of the day to come, in light of that day that will come at the end of the age. And so as we begin, I, I want to say first, if you're tempted to skip over these passages, don't. This is God's Word. But second, if you are tempted to study nothing but these passages, don't. This is God's Word for His people today, and it has been since the days that the words were first spoken. These words will, will teach us how to live today as the people of God as we wait for that day that he says is yet to come. And so our primary objective is not to take the words of Jesus here and line them up with the headlines in the newspapers today. Every generation has done that. And so far, every generation has been wrong. (laughs) But we are instead going to try to take Jesus' words and understand what is he telling us about what it means for us to live as the people of God today. That is our goal as we begin. And so let's look more closely at Jesus' actual words. And the first question that we have to answer, the kind of the, the big question that is at the foundation of everything that we are going to study this morning and in the next few weeks, everything revolves around the question of what is Jesus talking about? What is Jesus' subject matter? Now at first glance, it may appear the answer is obvious. I mean, look again at verses 5 and 6. Some people are talking about the grandeur of the temple, and when Jesus hears them, he says, as for these things you see. He points to the temple that they are talking about. He points to the massive stones that Herod had used to build the temple. He points to the the glory of the, the courtyard. And he says, as for these things, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. So the conversation starts with Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And as the conversation continues, this still seems to be the case in verse 20. Notice what he says there. He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. He's he's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about the, the city in which they now sit. He says, there's coming a day when this city will be surrounded by armies. And so it seems pretty clear that Jesus is is talking about the destruction of the temple and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in which the temple sits. He's he's talking about a destruction that will take place in just a generation, a a destruction that will take place in A.D. 70. 
In fact, his predictions are so accurate that that many people think he must have said these things, or at least the church must have put these words into his mouth after the fact. There's no way that that Jesus could have known so much about what was going to happen to Jerusalem. These things must have been said after the fact. But of course, we don't believe that because we believe that that Jesus is is God. He has the power to, to, to say what God is going to do. It is God who speaks through the prophets. And Jesus is the ultimate prophet, being God himself, who who speaks to us and tells us what God is going to do. Tells us how God is going to unfold history. The predictions are accurate because they are true, because he is God. And so here we have Jesus telling us what is going to happen to the city of Jerusalem or what is going to happen to the the temple within that city within a generation. He's talking about the fall of Jerusalem. However, before he is finished, before the the discourse is over, he begins to say some things that that seem to transcend that historical event. In verse 26, he speaks of people fainting with fear and foreboding about what is coming on the world. Why? Because the very heavens will be shaken. Then he speaks of the coming of the Son of Man in a cloud with power and and great glory. It's hard to imagine that that is the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome in A.D. 70. In verse 35, he speaks in an event that will come not just upon Jerusalem, but will come upon all who dwell in the face of the whole earth. And so, all of a sudden, Jesus begins by, by speaking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but he ends by describing something that seems like a much more cosmic event. He, he's speaking about, about something that is on a cosmic scale. He's, he's thinking about an event that's going to encapsulate the whole world. In particular, we would say he, he seems to be describing his second coming. He seems to be describing his parousia when he, when he comes again at the end of the age to judge the living and the dead. And indeed, you should know that that is the way that the church, that is the way that pastors and teachers, that is the way that that scholars have understood this text throughout most of church history. Most have understood that, that Jesus begins by speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem, but then moves on to speak about his second coming. He begins by speaking about an event that will take place within 40 years. But at some point, he He shifts to speaking about an event that is still yet future, now some 2,000 years later. Obviously then, if we're going to understand the benefit of of Jesus' teaching, if we're going to understand how to to live in its light, if we're going to understand how to apply it, then we need to figure out at which points he's talking about which events. And I want to suggest to you that in Luke's account, the shift takes place between verses 24 and 25. Look with me again at the paragraph beginning with verse 20. At this point, Jesus is clearly talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He he says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know its desolation. Then you will know Jerusalem's desolation has come near. So in this paragraph, Jesus is, is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome. But notice what he says. He says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. All right, that's the destruction of Jerusalem. But then he adds this, until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Jerusalem is going to be trampled by the Gentiles, and it will remain trampled. It will remain underfoot. When? Until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, in the coming Sundays, we will spend a great deal of time looking at the significance of that 
statement. But for now, simply notice that, that Jesus is saying that in the future, Jerusalem will be desolated and it will remain desolated. It will continue underfoot until some other future day. So Jesus is talking about two distinct future days. On the first day, Jerusalem will be destroyed. And it will remain destroyed. It will remain desolate. It will remain trampled until the second day. And it is in verse 25 that I think Jesus begins talking about that second day. It's easy to to miss the shift, but in effect, in verse 25, Jesus is saying, on that second day there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and so on. And the second day will culminate in the coming of the Son of Man in a cloud with power and great glory. So we have Jesus speaking about two days. And we, we can dissect it and we can disagree a little bit about when exactly he's talking about which day. But, but there seems to be a clear shift between verses 24 and 25. A clear shift where Jesus goes from speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem to talking about the day when the, the uh, day of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. And a new day will take place. A new day will dawn. A day when Jesus will come in the clouds with power and great glory. So there are two events here, two future events. And the question is, why does Jesus tie them together? Why does Jesus, in a conversation that began with a a comment about the destruction of the temple, why does Jesus move from talking about the destruction of the temple and and the, the fall of Jerusalem, why does he move to that, to speaking about his second coming? An event that is still future, some 2,000 years later. And I want to suggest to you, That Jesus shifts from talking about the destruction of Jerusalem to his second coming because the former is a type of the latter. The destruction of Jerusalem is a a foreshadow. It is a, a foreshadow of the judgment that will come upon the whole earth at the end of the age. And there have been many such foreshadows in Scripture. Another famous foreshadow of God's final judgment is the the destruction of the Canaanite nations that possessed the promised land prior to Israel. Remember that God sent Israel into the land and and told them to wipe out these nations, to, to drive them out without mercy. That is not the way that we are meant to practice war. That is not the way that that today in this unjust world when we are called to go to war that we are supposed to go to war. We are not to follow the example of the Israelites in the land of Canaan, but why not? Because the wars that we fight are defensive wars. They are, they are wars to protect justice. They are wars to, to maintain peace. You can look into the whole just war theory that the church has elaborated throughout the centuries. There's a way to fight war that is right and good. And wiping people out completely does not fall under that umbrella. And yet that is what God tells Israel to do. Because God is executing his righteous final judgment against the Canaanites. And he is using Israel as his instrument. He says, this is a foreshadow of the judgment that is to come. This is a picture of the judgment that will fall upon all men. It is is God's final judgment breaking into history now. And that's why what they do is different than what the church does today when we fight wars. Another similar example is the the fall of the northern tribes to Assyria in 722. Again, Assyria comes as an instrument in God's hands to execute God's judgment against the northern tribes which had been faithless. It's another picture of the judgment that's to come at the end of the age. And our response to such foreshadows, our, our response to such pictures of God's final judgment is often telling. Typically, we respond in one of two ways. Either we think to ourselves, wow, 
Those people must have been really bad to deserve something like that. Or we wonder how a good God could allow such a thing to happen. Wow, they must have been really bad. Or how in the world could God let that happen? Those are our two responses. And neither response is fitting. Neither response is appropriate. Let me, let me address the second one first. We think of a good and loving God as someone who would never allow such a thing to happen. We, we think a, a loving God would, would never allow such destructions to take place. And, and if he did, only on the most rare occasions. But again, this simply isn't true. In fact, the, the truth, as hard as it is for modern people to swallow, the, the truth is just the opposite. The question is not how a good and loving God could pour out his wrath on the Canaanites or or how he could judge Jerusalem in, in 70 A.D. The question is how he could tolerate their sins for so long. The Canaanites were a wicked people. They neither loved God nor Neighbor, I won't go into all the details this morning, but you can read the the history. They were a wicked people. Their sins were great, and they were justly condemned. They were fully deserving of God's wrath. And the same was true for Jerusalem in Jesus' day. We have just heard in, in previous Sundays, as we've been working our way through Luke's gospel, how the religious leaders of of Jesus' day used their position to to advance their own interest and were willing to consume even widows' houses to make their own lives more comfortable. Their religion was a a pretense for selfishness and and self-service. Their judgment was just. For not only did they abuse their neighbor, but they rejected their king when he came and called them to repentance. And not only did they reject him, but they put him to death. Their judgment was just. Now, we're not used to thinking that way. When I I taught Bible classes for for high schools, I will will tell you that the doctrine that I got the the greatest resistance to, the the most pushback on, was was the doctrine of God's just judgment of sinners. They they could not believe it. We live in an age of tolerance. We live in an age where the greatest virtue is to live and let live. And yet, despite our professed tolerance... At some level, we know God's judgment is just. We know it's right. It's why TV shows and and movies in which bad people get what's coming to them are so popular. We we somehow feel satisfied when the wicked people get their comeuppance. When they get what they deserve. And it's not just in the movies. Were you not somehow satisfied when Larry Nassar was sentenced to life and multiple lives in prison. If anything, you were probably dissatisfied because his punishment was too light. His punishment seemed not sufficiently harsh given the the nature and the extent of his abuse. A good and loving judge could not see his crimes and refuse to act in the name of tolerance. Just the opposite. It is the judge's love that compelled her to condemn. Therefore, the question is not how could God allow such things to happen, but rather, how could God wait so long to reveal his wrath? 
the question that Peter answers in his second letter. He says that God's delay is not the result of apathy or, or indifference. God is not slow as some people count slowness, but rather God is patient. God's delay is the fruit of his patience. He is patiently giving people the opportunity to repent. He is is patiently giving them the opportunity to to turn from their sins. Why? Because he says that if they will turn from their sins, he will forgive. If he turns from their sins, he will will cover their sins. He He will cover their sins with the blood of Christ. And he will remove their guilt as far as east is from west. God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. And therefore he patiently endures their evil. That they might have time to repent. We, we see this in the history of God's relationship with Israel, the history that Jesus described in the parable of the vineyard. Jesus was unbelievably patient with Israel, unbelievably long-suffering. But we must see this, that while God's patience is long, it is not eternal. Eventually, judgment comes. Eventually, wrath is Revealed. And this brings us to our second inappropriate response. We wonder how God could allow such things, but we also think somewhere in our hearts, wow, they must have been really bad. They must have been really bad to deserve such a fate. They must have been really bad to deserve such a, such a judgment. But do you remember what Jesus says when, when Herod spilled the blood of the, the Gentiles and mixed it with their sacrifices? He said, do not think that they were especially wicked, but rather think, I must repent, or I will suffer the same fate. You see, the judgment of which Jesus speaks, the the judgment that will come upon Israel, the judgment that will befall the temple and the city of Jerusalem, is a judgment that one day will be poured out on all the people who dwell in the face of the whole earth. That's why Jesus shifts from the one to the other. He says, yes, judgment is coming upon Jerusalem, but the judgment that will come on Jerusalem will one day come upon the whole earth. We must not think that it is reserved for an exclusive elite of the wicked. It is for all men, all those who have failed to honor God as God. It is for all those who have lived in rebellion against Him. It is for all those who have gone their own way. It is for all those who live in in sin and and rebellion against their king. And just as judgment came upon Jerusalem in 70 AD, there is still a day when that judgment will befall all who dwell upon the face of the earth. And so the question that we must wrestle with, the question that every generation must wrestle with, is simply this, are we ready for that day? Are we ready for the day when that judgment will come The judgment of of Jerusalem, it ought to remind us that while God's patience is long, it is not eternal. And on that day, the external trappings of religion will not be enough. That's in particular why the the temple will be destroyed. They looked to the temple and they they thought, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. This is our hope. If If we honor God here, surely we will be saved. And God says, no. Do not put your trust in the temple. Do not put your your trust in the external uh, uh, mechanisms of, of religion. Do not think that because you go through the motions you will be saved. But rather, 
Trust in the Son. Trust in the Messiah. Trust in the King whom I have sent to deliver His people. The horn of salvation raised up in keeping with God's promises. Trust in Him and you will be saved. There is no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. On that day when God's wrath is revealed, it will be rightly and justly poured out on all who dwell on the face of the earth. And the only thing that will protect you is the blood of the Lamb. He is our only hope. He is the one who can deliver us from the wrath to come. So we must ask ourselves, have we trusted in Him? If we have, then let's cling to Him. Let's, Let's cling to the crucified. Let's remain in Him. Let's abide in Him. For He is our hope. And let us look to Him daily as we await that day when His judgment will be revealed. But of course... If you have never trusted in Him, if your religion is merely an external sham, then hear the words of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the wilderness when your fathers put the Lord to the test, but take care lest there be in you an evil and unbelieving heart. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, for we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confession to the end. Today, today is the day of salvation. Today, that future day of judgment is still future. Today there is room to repent and God calls to you through His church and through His gospel and says, hear the good news of the gospel and believe. Hear the good news of the gospel and and receive my King and be saved in Him. Today is the day of salvation. If you are His, press on in your faith. But if you are not His, if you do not know Him as your Savior and Lord, then today you are to believe in Him. Jesus wept for Jerusalem because they did not know the day of their visitation. They did not recognize the things that would make for true and lasting peace. And therefore, because they rejected Him, because they put Him to death, they suffered God's wrath. Not one stone was left upon another. May the church today not make the same Mistake. May God grant to us the mercy and the grace that we need to truly believe in Him and to rest in His salvation. For Jesus came to give His life as a ransom for many, that those who believe in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. If we believe in Him and hold fast to our confession, then for us, in Christ, that day will be a day of redemption and not wrath. And because such a salvation is freely ours and freely offered to all who will believe, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness. This morning we have remembered Your faithful provision. And nowhere is that provision seen more clearly than in the gift of Your Son. Father, forgive us for not trusting Him. Grant us the grace to believe in Him. Grant us the grace to rest in Him. Grant us the grace to walk in the footsteps of faith. 
to the praise of His glory until that day when He comes again in the clouds with power and great glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.